Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, we look to the future of broadcasting as Ofcom announces a new review of the TV landscape. Spotify snaps up Harry and Meghan. We take a look at the former Royals podcast strategy and another spendy year for the Swedish music streaming giant. Also on the programme, The Guardian report record donations. The BBC invests in the comedy scene and in the media quiz. I insert my Christmas paraphernalia into the week's media news. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today in our exclusive media hub, my digitised Groucho of the Sky, is audio entrepreneur extraordinaire at Matt himself, Mr Matt Deegan. Hello, Matt. Hey, Ollie. You've had no Rajars to analyse this year. (laughs) Has your Christmas been ruined? Because that's how I imagine you spend it. Uh, it's been beautiful. I actually did a, a conference where I interviewed some uh, radio station bosses and, and asked them questions about Ray Jar and did they miss it? Uh, it's it's like they all suffer from Munchausen syndrome in that they sort of all did and they really wanted it to be there every quarter. I think it's just because they're used to it more than anything else. And you're, you're Ray Jar's biggest fan. I mean, I, like, I imagine you like in that Simpsons sketch where they're sitting there with the little baseball flags, you know, waiting for the season premiere. That's how you are, waiting for the next quarter to finally be unveiled. Are we going to get some next year, do you think? Uh, I think we're going to get some in August. I think we have to wait till that long to get some data. I think they're going to uh, okay. be into the market in Q2, which means we won't see it until uh, August. And next to Matt, when I click on my viewfinder, is digital editor at Immediate Media, Rebecca Messina, is back on the show. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Ollie. Um, now, you have the answer to the question we're all asking. What are the best decorative chess sets for your home? <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote that one myself. I noticed. Um, I'm a big fan of the three-person chess set. Did you see that one? I'll be honest, for me, it was all about the Matryoshka doll set from Amazon. That Only forty eight ninety nine. I mean, what a talking point. You can't afford not to buy it. <laughs> and if I you mean, do, please do, because we will make a small commission on that. Well, is that, yes, referral fees, important at this time Absolutely. of year. The other thing as well with magazine publishing, I guess, you know, as it comes up to Christmas... The tradition is you kind of have to create twice as much content to get through the Christmas break and simultaneously plan January. Is that basically your experience at the moment? Yeah, you've basically described the last week or so. The last couple of days is when I've really felt like, oh, it seems like there's a lot of time to Christmas, but we're not actually working for almost all of it. So, yeah, I'm going to have a mega day of Facebook posting tomorrow. Yeah, right. Okay. And you're backing stuff up for weeks and weeks to come. I mean, you know, I write a column for a print magazine and I've just Mm. written February. It's really odd. Like we haven't had Christmas Day yet. Yeah, well, I mean, so on digital, we're obviously pushing the last of Christmas and working on January trend stuff. But on the magazines, on the print teams, they're working on March, April, May even now. So, yeah, it's crazy. They're already picking what we're going to be loving this spring and summer. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Well, (laughs) on to the news. And we end the year with a little look into the future of broadcasting as the culture minister, John Whittingdale, says Netflix could be placed under Ofcom's jurisdiction one day. Uh, This comes after a recent announcement by Ofcom to review public service broadcasting in the UK, uh, something they call their small screen big debate. Um, The report said, new laws may be needed for public service broadcasting to survive in the online world. The public service remit could be extended to additional content makers and PSBs must create new partnerships to better compete. Uh, Lots to unpick there, Matt. Let's... Start with partnerships. How do you read the runes for the BBC and Channel 4? 
PSBs must create new partnerships to better compete. I mean, the crazy thing is we'd all have much better partnerships if the regulator hadn't stopped things like kangaroo happening 10 years ago. It's nice that the regulators say, oh, you should work together. It's maybe a bit late uh, for that. I think things are moving fast. I've just got a new uh, Chromecast that comes with Google TV, basically Chromecast with a, with a remote control. Um, and it does that job of pulling all the stuff from... BBC, ITV, Amazon and Netflix into one scrollable thing. You know, there's no EPG in it because it's all on-demand content. There's no rules around public service content being, you know, top of the list or whatever. You know, that's that's a challenge, you know, the way these devices are going Um, and some government regulation around that. If you think that's the right thing to ensure that public service content reaches people is important. I think one of the dangers is if you're a Netflix aficionado and you just you don't really consume a lot of broadcast television, um, you're not necessarily seeing what, what was traditionally public service. And should um, those services be mandated to show stuff, whoever makes it? It seems to me there's like an intrinsic contradiction, Rebecca, in what the Ofcom report says, because it's sort of celebrating public service broadcasting you know seven in ten adults love public service broadcasting they love to have british made stuff they love their regional news and then in the same report it's kind of saying but netflix is coming for your children it's like well which is it like if it's so popular then it will survive if it isn't then it needs to be regulated yeah, and I think the um, they've, it's quite a clever idea in the uh, Ofcom report, the idea that rather than trying to force, you know, the BBC to become more like Netflix, we should do something to force Netflix to become more like the BBC. Yeah, it's a clever way of looking at it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, of course we celebrate public service broadcasters because it, it's it's an amazing service and it is important. But at the same time, like, you know, we celebrate vegetables. They're really healthy. <laughs> and the more we eat, you know, the better we'll be. But like, you don't always want them. Do you know what I mean? And like, you've got generations of people now, like, you know, my generation and younger, who are used to consuming most of their content via streaming. And when you are given a choice of literally everything you could want, you're probably going to choose to, you know, go and rewatch Parks and Recreation or something, aren't you? You know, over watching, you know, Newsnight. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. And I do think there is something in the idea that maybe the the uh, the best solution is to place more constraints on Netflix. I mean, you are kind of artificially, you know, putting these restrictions that don't technically need to be there, but that might actually have to be the solution. It's not necessarily very pretty, but at the end of the day, if you leave it open to the consumer market, people are probably just going to choose what's easiest and most comforting. Yeah, but then what kind of constraints? I mean, Matt, if you said to Netflix, right, you need to produce a portion of your content needs to be about British regional news. <laughs> it seems like a laughable concept, but if that is what was said, then they really would be a direct competitor for the BBC, and that would be a problem. They'd, they'd likely win in a lot of those scenarios because they'd have more budget to throw at it. Well, you could argue then, does it? Who cares whether they, you know, whether the BBC win or loses? If if consumers get the right public service content, then who cares whether you know Harry Gratian makes a big money transfer to Netflix? Then that's that's a good news for good news for Yorkshire. I think there is an interesting bit about British content and public content being surfaced on those places. So Netflix doesn't have to make Northwest tonight, uh, but maybe they should surface that to consumers. I don't think that'd be a, ter- a terrible thing. And what about this business of the public service remit being extended to additional content makers? So not necessarily platforms, but companies. I wonder whether there's an argument for much, much smaller providers. I mean, actually, people like us. I mean, here we are essentially having a public service conversation that... Uh, spoiler listeners, isn't profitable. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, could we say, right, we, we need... Some, it used to be called top slicing, didn't it? But we mm. need some public service money. Well, there is... You know, audio Content Fund's a great example of that. You know, million pounds a year comes from the government for independent production companies to make audio for commercial radio and community radio. Um, and that's been really successful. It's made some really interesting shows for fun kids. We've had quite a few indies work with us for the first time to produce really great material... Uh, that sits on our platform, but is also available on podcast. Uh, so I think once you, once the broad, so one of the issues is historically buttons one, two, three, and four were super essential and um, where everybody went. 
Uh, now, if you're over 55, that's still the case. Uh, but for large chunks of the audience, that isn't the case anymore. So originally in the 90s and the noughties, they introduced rules around EPGs so that good you know, PSB content must drift up top of the EPG. Now in an EPG-less world, what do you do? But if you strip away the channels being important, then actually the content becomes important. So if you say, Matt, you need to make the all-new um, Good Morning Yorkshire, um, and I'll say I can do a good job of that. And I've done a deal with Ted Sandos to, to make all Yorkshire people see it when they log into Netflix. That's a that's a, a similar replacement for what was mandated by the regulator in the 80s and 90s. Well, except, of course, it would put public service television in the hands of a big American corporation. I mean, that that is the argument really for the BBC and not for Netflix, isn't it? But it is already. So can you can we see... Um, to BBC, obviously, with iPlayer, to a lesser degree, ITV with Hub and Channel 4 with All 4. You know, all of them have tried to move from catch-up to destination um, with mixed success. Um, but to be honest, I think a lot of that is going uh, to be to the, to the wayside because of the new devices. And that can be um, uh, Freeview Play as well as Apple TV and um, you know, Google TV, you know, collating stuff and bringing stuff together you know, there is a new person in the mix now uh, telling us what we can see on the television and actually of course rebecca netflix are spending more money on british content anyway aren't they even without being asked to um they've just announced collaborations with uh, stormzy's brand consultant amazing job uh, akua ajem fram uh, rap man the filmmaker uh, the writer of sex education bisha k ali uh, so uh, British Black Voices, basically, Rebecca, getting big vehicles on Netflix. Do you think they're playing catch-up there, or do you think they're ahead of their rivals? Well, yeah, I mean, I do, I do think in a lot of ways they are ahead of the game. I mean, we've seen recent things, you know, like Small Acts um, on the BBC. I think that's starting to go in, you know, in the direction that, um, you know, activists have been talking about forever now, which is, you know, not just casting um, actors from ethnic minorities in random roles, not just colorblind casting, but actually telling stories, you know, by black minority ethnic creators, like about people from those communities. Um, you know, and we've seen, we have seen an increase in that. And I, I think, you know, even seen interesting things happening, like the backlash over the Famalam sketch, uh, do you remember the Jamaican countdown? Lots of people got very angry on Twitter saying it was, you know, um, exploiting stereotypes of Jamaicans, but it was made by black British creators. And they mm. were able then to have this conversation where it wasn't, you know, pale, male, stale comedians saying, oh, take a joke. It was, you know, creators from that community engaging in, you know, a, a real debate with other members of the same community about what's acceptable. Well, let's be fair, the, the same thing happened with Sisters and Calm about six years ago, but that's just a much less oh, sexy yeah, example. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that was Muslims complaining to a Muslim to... comedian, wasn't it, about the portrayal? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I didn't go into the Citizen Calm barrel for my comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right, I suppose, yes. It's, it's, a more sophistic, it's a more nuanced conversation, isn't it, between minorities uh, making the shows and minorities claiming they're not being represented than when it's white people making the shows. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, some of it comes down to budget. I mean, Netflix just has so so much money to splash out that it's relatively easy for them to, you know, to grab a headline by investing, you know, X million into this thing or X million into this country or community. You know, they, they can make those kind of pronouncements that the BBC couldn't really compete with. But they're also global, aren't they, Matt? So that's the other thing. There is actually a financial model, isn't there, to say, you know, it's it's not a minority group if it's available to everyone in that minority group all around the world in some countries where you're not a minority. Sure, but I think also there's this back to public service. You know, Sex Education is a really well-made and expensive show. The money goes into UK production companies, but that is designed to be a program that doesn't look British. Mm. You know, it doesn't look too British. Like you're not really sure what it's meant to be, and it's designed that way. And you know, The Crown obviously is very British, but that's designed again to be shit to ship everywhere, um, you know, reflecting. British stories is the challenge and I think some of these things they've announced do um, but again I think the challenge is Netflix can get the headlines it doesn't actually produce that much volume compared to UK broadcasters who are having to make you know hundreds more programs for um, you know the, the main channels than the Netflix does yeah I mean it did intrigue me when 
Netflix put out there, you know, saying that they're going to invest more money into telling stories from different communities. And they mentioned racial, obviously that's expected. But when they mentioned socioeconomic, I thought that was interesting too, especially as you're saying, Matt, you know, they, a lot of their stories are designed to be relatively, you know, bland culturally so that they can, you know, be shown in across all their different territories. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see what socioeconomic is going to look like to them diversity wise. There could be no better example of that global audience being involved than Netflix snapping up Rowan Atkinson's next series as well. I mean, that's they're after the Mr Bean audience there, aren't they? It's a, it's a physical comedy series, Man versus Bee. I mean, every digital platform in the world would want that, wouldn't they? Sure, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? You think Mr Bean's been such a success. I mean, I know that Rowan Atkinson is probably pretty choosy about what he does, but to come up with a kind of a version of it obviously we don't really know what it is yet but kind of a version of it i imagine they got the checkbooks out but i'm sure it'll monetize beautifully in you know 100 markets yeah and in like 30 years time as well <laughs> that's the astonishing thing isn't it mr bean clips from the itv series in the 90s are still massive on youtube it's insane um let's talk about podcasting now and less than a year since michelle obama's podcast launched spotify have landed another big proposition harry and megan will be delivered into your ears in the new year in the form of the uh, incredibly uninterestingly named podcast Archwell Audio. Uh, Rebecca, what is the show going to be about? Do you know what? I've almost already forgotten. It, it You know, it's inspiring <laughs> stories from inspiring people. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's corporate kind of stuff. You know, they might not be working royals officially anymore but they certainly can't get involved in anything that's a bit bit dirty or a bit edgy so it's going to be very uplifting content um and i i don't know unless they start sharing things about their personal lives i don't know how wide of an appeal it's going to have in the long term but the style of it i mean we only have a trailer to go on so far but the style is notably podcasty and not that corporate we can hear a clip should we should we start no ladies first no, say it, because I think it sounds really nice with your accent. What, Archwell Audio? Arch- yeah. Archwell Audio. I mean... Really? <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, guys, I'm Harry. And I'm Megan. One of the things my husband and I have always talked about is our passion for meeting people and hearing their stories. And no matter what the story, they usually offer you an understanding of where someone else is coming from. And at the same time, remind you in some way of a story about yourself. And that's what this project is all about, to bring forward different perspectives and voices that perhaps you haven't heard before and find our common ground. There are different voices, different oh, perspectives. It's so Rebecca. arrogant. It's Who could so be less arrogant. establishment and elitist than a member of the royal oh, family? Look, I mean, common ground. They must be having a laugh. <laughs> but it's just, I, um, no, nothing against either of them personally, and I'm sure it'll be perfectly listenable. But it's the, this idea that they're telling stories that haven't been told as though there aren't hundreds of podcasters out there who've been doing that for years. Mm, I can it's think of a few. Yeah. But, yes, you can probably can. <laughs> but I'm not, I, I personally don't resent them, Matt, you know, as someone who makes similar shows to the ones they're describing. <laughs> um, I, I've kind of always thought that the more celebrities get involved in podcasting, you know, your Gemma Collinses and everybody... It does drive up listenership for podcasting, and ultimately that's a good thing for everyone making a podcast. Rising tide carries all ships, uh, so Something more, like more, that. Pe- more people in the sex is good. I mean, the things that annoy me, Archwell Audio is a production company name rather than a brand name, but maybe that'll be fixed later on, I'm sure it will be. Um, I, mean, I mean, people have said to Spotify they had problems with royalties, so maybe this is them <laughs> fixing that. <laughs> but the, their acquisition of Gimlet, I'm not going to say it's paying off, but this is another coup that at least uses some of the things that they'd bought because that style, that informal style we just heard in the trail, it is. I, I know Meghan Markle is a seasoned actress, but even so, <laughs> to produce Prince Harry to sound like that, I imagine must have taken actually quite a lot of effort. And that's yes. the kind of thing Gimlet are good at, isn't it? I mean, for, for, for Spotify, they, they've had a blinder of a year. Uh, they've signed up a lot of people, they've obviously acquired companies. Um, they're positioning themselves that you have to basically use the Spotify app as your podcast app mm. because it will combine shows you can get publicly from RSS feeds with shows that are exclusive to their platform. Uh, and 
this just like Michelle Obama um, and uh, Joe Rogan uh, will do that and you know they're they're playing a blinder will it be a super successful show if it was them solving family problems that's something <laughs> I'd listen to why do you think it is though Rebecca that for I mean I'm using the shorthand of calling them royals I know technically they're not in the the official practicing royal family but for royals why do you think podcasting would appeal where it's hard to imagine a royal, even an excommunicated one, doing a regular radio show or a TV show. You know, Megan uh, would not be doing an LBC phone-in, would she? Quick answer, probably because they can edit it to shit. You know, it's very, it's a very safe way for them to, you know, they can achieve two things. You know, they make themselves sound relatable. Podcast is like having a friend in your ears. But also, it's obviously going to be, you know, edited very carefully so it can be, you know, presented in this you know, in the package they've got in mind. Um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I might listen if they drop a few, you know, little hints about their private lives. <laughs> I mean, on that, does their willingness to allow certain vetted media organisations access into their private lives contradict with what they're doing in the High Court? I mean, you know, they're suing associated newspapers, they're suing a picture agency uh, for invading their privacy. Can they have it both ways? Yes, they need to make a living but they are making a living by selling access to themselves. Well, I think that's very in line with what they're doing. You know, they have decided that it's going to be entirely beyond their own terms. And um, that's a mixture of legal, giving exclusives, owned media. And they've got a documentary thing with Netflix as well as they've got this with yeah. Spotify. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it fits the plan. Now, whether that works or not, we'll see. I'm sure it'll be absolutely fine for them. Um, I think they also know that they've got to by being totally against the press, which is pretty much what they are, they need access to their own media. So social media, podcasts and the Netflix telly to to get their own voices heard. Um, so they don't need the in-betweenness of the Sun or the Daily Mail to communicate to the to the public. And they've done that too. You know, they've, they've created their own channels to, to speak to our subjects directly. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think, you know, we have seen recently a bit more of a celebrity pushback against this idea that it is a trade-off. And I think, you know, for you know decades, we've accepted as kind of a fact this idea that if you're famous, you owe us a certain amount of your personal life. It comes in the territory and we've just kind of let that be, you know, just the fact. It was a sort of Piers Morgan argument, basically. Yeah, well, now we're seeing pushback. And I think, you know, awareness around things like mental health has contributed to it. You know, there are celebrities who are saying, why? Who says? You know, and I think having their own, you know, social media, podcast platform, etc. has, you know, really boosted that movement towards, no, well, I'll tell you what you can have. And from Spotify's point of view, Matt, I mean, you say it will work in terms of getting people to the platform, and I'm sure it will, but they're investing so much money. Do you know how they judge whether it's a success? I mean, what's the metric? Because the only way they make money is by converting people into premium subscribers or selling them targeted ads. Yeah, which is you know not a dreadful business model to have. You know, that's that's so podcast. If you're a Spotify subscriber and don't get ads on the music, you will still get ads on the podcasts. So there's a, there's an ad model there. I'm looking forward to Meghan and Harry doing Squarespace and DoorDash ads, um, <laughs> but they will. I mean, they will read their reads or there were there were ads in Michelle Obama's show. Maybe they'll have a third person uh, stunt character who'll do the reads for them. Who knows? Uh, some courtier. But that's the that's the market. I mean, but for Spotify as a whole, um, you got to remember that the music bit doesn't really make any money. But all they need to do is shave a couple of percentage points off the royalties they pay uh, or the volume that they pay the record companies to make the whole thing profitable. So if I was them and I was saying, hey, only 70% of the audio consumed on Spotify is music now. When we come up to rights negotiation, we want to have another look at that. So by being broader, I think they, they have a few levers they can pull that could actually make their operation much more profitable and I think podcasting is partly a way to do that. I wonder if there's something to be said for the fact that you know for instance I'm not I was a premium subscriber and I've it's lapsed so I'm not anymore but if I put on a playlist of music I don't really mind the ads and I don't mind if it's skipping around at random because it's my playlist but if I'm listening to a podcast if I want to go on to the next episode like I'm obviously not going to be happy if it skips to two episodes before you know there's a certain idea that you need to have control over the, you know the order that you're listening to each episode which would probably push some people towards signing up. 
so it, sh- it shouldn't affect your podcast listening so that should just be all just like normal like any other app um oh, really but, this is just yeah. normal chat now sorry but I think what's interesting is that on their shows, on, on Spotify originals, uh, as well as the normal audio ads, they can put video into those. They know obviously more about you. They can get a, a better premium on uh, those those commercials. Yeah, they're so not I adding th- ads, are they, to independent shows like this one? They're only adding ads to their own shows at the moment. Because, the I moment. mean, if you make a podcast and you're listening to this and you're thinking, I should, be, should I be telling people to listen on Spotify? You might be thinking, I don't want them monetizing my show and I don't see any of it. So I don't think they're going to monetize you as a surprise, but they might, you know, they're building an ad network for their own shows, which I'm sure at some point will be opened up to other people. They already have that with Anchor, which is their sort of self-service thing um, that runs ads from the network. But And some people might say, you know what, rather than be with Acast or DAX or Audio Boom, I wouldn't mind Spotify selling my ads. Um, the other thing that we'll see from Spotify is, you know, back in the day when playlists first arrived, there were loads of indie playlists and they were promoted by Spotify. Um, nowadays, it's mainly Spotify playlists and music industry partners that are promoted. Uh, when we look at podcasts, they promote a lot of podcasts at the moment, but I'm sure that will drift a bit more to looking at their originals. You know, they control the audience and what they see. We're back to that, what we were saying earlier about, you know, Netflix and flagging shows and, and access to, to, to that promotion. Okay, well, let's see whether Acast have uh, any dynamic ads to inject for us. <laughs> we'll be back after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Media Podcast is made in partnership with Rethink Audio, a group of award-winning podcast producers. Let's have a quick turn of the dial and hear what they've been up to this week. I worked in obstetrics on Labour Ward, which is, I'd say, towards the higher end, but nowhere as high as, as you get. Best-selling author Adam Kay talks to flying doctors about the trauma they witness for the London's Air Ambulance podcast, Picking Up the Pieces. Their focus should be really on educating and delivering that experience to students rather than working through IT problems. Microsoft's Angela Chin reflects on a year of virtual classrooms for Jabra's podcast, The Soundbar. Uh, there was a one case of a crazy person who burned his French car. And the week's digital team discussed the three most important stories that have passed under your radar this week for the week unwrapped. Well, it just shows you that uh, following hashtags sometimes is a very stupid thing to do. And much, much more. Maybe they can help you make your next podcast. For more information, head to rethinkaudio.com now. Welcome back. Matt and Rebecca are still with me. And let's talk comedy now, because the BBC's head of comedy, Shane Allen, has launched a new comedy association. Uh, Its press release says its core purpose is to promote inclusion and representation on and off screen with a commitment to engage and enable a new wave of comedic talent. Uh, Rebecca, sounds a bit like what you were saying about Thamalam earlier, basically. Yeah, I think going going in the same direction, although I expect now they'll be mindful of the you know, the recent idea that there aren't enough right-wing comedians 
which I th- it was months ago now, wasn't it, that it first became a big talking point, but it's all been bubbling along under the surface since then. Yes. Um, so I imagine that this is going to involve some kind of half-hearted, hair-brained chase after some right-wing comedians that they can stick on panel shows. Which is actually, might, I mean, you're grimacing whilst you say this, but that is what true I mean, diversity is, isn't it? It's a diversity of ethnic representation, but also class, background and political views. Yeah, but they do have to be funny. <laughs> yes. No, I'm, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying I haven't seen it happen yet. I thought I might, might as well just just add, add some fake right-wing views. You'd probably get a better chance of being on Have I Got News For You. <laughs> the thing is, though, maybe, the, maybe uh, looking at it charitably, maybe when next time there's a Labour government, whenever that might be, it might be easier. It's just very difficult for there to be a right-wing government and to have right-wing comedians, especially on panel shows like Have I Got News For You that are very political. I mean, you could be right-wing and go on there and, you know, if you didn't slag off the Tories, maybe you wouldn't be considered right-wing enough. You know, certainly Labour were satirised enough, you know, in their last tenure in office. So Okay, we're now yeah, discussing the point that sorry, you introduced sorry. to my running order, Rebecca. So I'm going to bring you back <laughs> <laughs> to the conversation we were having, which is about supporting up-and-coming comedians of whatever political persuasion outside of the usual mechanics. So one of the things Shane Allen is saying is basically... He's not saying we don't need to go to Edinburgh anymore, but he is kind of saying, stop just getting all your new comedians from Edinburgh Festival. You need to look elsewhere. You need to look at TikTok, is what he says. I think that if, you've, if you're successful on TikTok, there's a question about whether you need the BBC to support you. I mean, right. I, think, I think in some ways it's the other way around. You know, the BBC would be lucky if social media performers want to deign their presence on their linear networks, whereas at the moment... They have actually control their own networks and they monetize it directly. The yeah. successful ones much better than a, a, a fee to be on. Have I got news for you for a night? And and there's a question as well of like the difference between formats. Someone who can do incredibly hilarious 20 second TikTok videos. What will they do on the BBC? If, for instance, if you know, are they going to turn that into what a sketch show, a sitcom, etc.? Like it might might not always fit. And there's also the thing of. I was talking to a friend the other day. I had sent him a video of just someone, you know, being funny on Twitter for like 30 seconds. And he said, before Twitter, how would we have got this? And I'm like, that's true. You know, this there are people who are excelling in this format that doesn't really exist on, on traditional broadcast, well, broadcast TV and even streaming platforms, really, because it's like, you know, short form comedy. It's a case of how do you use those people that there's not necessarily even a place for them and well actually there is a place which is a sketch show like an old-fashioned bbc2 channel 4 sketch show why doesn't that exist actually well the thing is right think about it you go on youtube you look up your old favorite harry and paul sketches hilarious but if you think back to when we would sit down and watch a half hour sketch show half of them weren't very good Mm. you didn't like them you know and that's basically a microcosm of the whole issue with traditional television is that they're serving you a big helping of random things that you either like or don't like and you just have to sit through them and there's obviously now you know younger generations saying well why would i when i can just go and pick out the best few minutes you know mitchell and webb show all of those things you know there are sketches that have you know they they've become you know popular gifts or they've gone viral people cite them all the time but people don't sit down and think i'll stream an old episode of the mitchell and webb show because most of it was crap like my sketches. <laughs> I mean, well, there is there is also that Michelin Web sketch where they say, "Is this going to be the one that's not very funny? Is this the sketch that's not very funny?" <laughs> then there's a funny one that follows this. I mean, though, if you are the next Michelin Web, take an example. I mean, if actually, if you are in this uh, poor, now derided minority of uh, white Oxbridge comedians who can't get a break, um, <laughs> presumably you are still best off going to edinburgh and doing a one-hour show aren't you if you're that kind of comic like if you want a radio four show the old means are still there for you surely well i guess if 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 you're up and coming comedian you you need two things don't you you need money uh and you need platform slash awareness uh and historically the best way to do that would be from from bbc2 slash bbc3 or channel four um and the question now is well is 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 that the case it's probably a it's probably still a relatively speedy route to do to do well but if you're good you've probably had a, a, a twitter youtube tiktok breakout already and the fact 
you know, you would arrive fully formed at Edinburgh is probably isn't 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 much of a thing. Now you might go to Edinburgh to make some money. I know that's crazy as people don't make any money for Edinburgh, but it's sort of reversed a bit, isn't it? You don't go to Edinburgh to practice. You've practiced online or on digital platforms or on a Paramount Comedy Central comedy spin-off thing, uh, and then you've and then maybe you've taken that up to Scotland. So I just think even saying, hey, we should look to the internet. I'm not sure that whether those internet people are that bothered about what broadcast telly wants. Okay, let's talk about news now. And The Guardian has announced it's gained over a quarter of a million new digital subscriptions and recurring contributions over the last year, an increase of 43%, Rebecca. I feel like COVID is responsible, but is it? Um, I don't know. I think it's maybe may too, too hard to tell at the moment. There's just been so much going on this year, and especially, you know, the conversations over fake news... That I think that has pushed a lot of people to, you know, they want to hang their colours to the mast, stick their colours, pin their colours to the mast of the It's traditional- Christmas, do whatever you yeah. like. Yeah. Festively display your colours on a mast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to align themselves with the traditional, much maligned mainstream media. That, and then COVID, of course, you know, people um, are obviously invested in not just getting the latest updates, but in getting the most accurate updates. Um, it's it's good news for the Guardian. It's not often that you hear the Guardian and a story connected with it having you know a positive financial break. And Matt, interesting to see print subscriptions are up too. Marginally, I mean they've been in decline for so long. You sort of look at it and go, is it a change or is it just sort of the bustle of, of going up or down? Well, it's a record a- number of print subscriptions, one hundred nineteen thousand. But of course, that's direct subscriptions with The Guardian, whereas in the mm. old days, people used to just ask their newsagent to deliver it. And that wouldn't have counted as a statistic anywhere. We probably didn't walk past a newsagent for most of this year because yeah. we weren't probably supposed to. I think COVID has had an effect uh, and that there's a, a group of people who've been very unfortunate with coronavirus and their work situation uh, and had to change their lifestyles because of it. And there's also a, another group of people who have been able to work from home um, who have a much higher disposable income because they haven't been uh, going out or doing things. Uh, and maybe some of that has gone on traditional and non and digital media. Uh, it's something that we've noticed at Immediate as well is that um, print subscriptions have been up significantly. And I, I think that probably, you know, can't really confirm it, but that's probably COVID related in terms of people not wanting to be going out too much um you know preferring to have the news brought to them like in the ye old days um which, so that possibly has had an effect in that way i've become a print subscriber to things this year that i wasn't you know because of covid most recently mm. condé nest traveler can you believe just because <laughs> i thought you know what actually that's exactly what i want to read right now i want to look at pictures of nice places that i could be rather than where i, am. <laughs> I wonder whether you know, you think about the news of the last 12 months. I know you say a lot's been going on, Rebecca, but it's not just a lot going on, is it? It's a lot that really is in The Guardian's wheelhouse. You know, you had Jeremy Corbyn standing at a national election. You had President Trump standing for a re-election in the United States. You had Black Lives Matter. You had a crisis over climate change. I mean, if yeah. The Guardian wasn't going to shine now, when would it? <laughs> The Guardian is traditionally the way in which middle class white people try and find out what non middle class non white people are thinking. So I can definitely see that, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, etc., have probably driven interest, you know, in hearing those perspectives, which The Guardian is already, you know, in only compared to the rest of the mainstream media, but has traditionally had a bit more of a handle on on, you know, on showcasing those viewpoints. Should we talk about radio, Matt? We've got you here. Yeah, far away. <laughs> We've dragged you downstairs in your pyjamas. <laughs> we might as well open the big Christmas present and discuss radio. Uh, it's essentially been a year of mass consolidation across the commercial networks, but there are some Hugely. new launches mm. to discuss. Tell us. Uh, yeah, so the ones that are, that are coming next year... Uh, well, the one that's coming next year is called Boom Radio. And then Jack FM, uh, which has a station called Union Jack on National Digital Radio and some local stations in Oxford, are launching two spin-offs um, uh, around Union Jack Rock and Union Jack Dance. Uh, they... And the thing is, they play British, right? That's Union Jack. They, they yes, play British music. Yeah, so they play British music, and it's not kind of Nigel Farage, UKIP style radio. It's just they happen to play songs uh, from, just like the from Beatles. British people. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, the interesting thing with with Jack is the people behind it are probably the one of the larger, less 
you know, one of the largest independents remaining on radio. So this year slash last year, uh, Bauer acquired um, Celador Radio. They acquired UTV's radio, uh, local radio stations, Lynx FM Group. Um, uh, so uh, and have converted pretty much all of that into greatest hits radio. So these national stations on national DAB uh, are the, one of the last remaining independents. So Union Jack, sort of rock flavoured um, mix of genres, British music, Union Rock Union Jack Rock and Union Jack Dance sort of do what they say on the tin, but their their description of those genres is very, very broad. So dance is basically stuff you can tap your foot to. Um, uh, and, and rock is, it's got a guitar or you thought it might have had a guitar. It's that sort of, <laughs> that sort of breadth. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting. I mean, the challenge for, for, for the, the Jack brand is you know they're well-programmed radio stations got some good people involved um but and crucially basically no presenters right i know they have a breakfast show in oxfordshire but essentially no presenters they have kind of amusing interstitials written by comedy writers yeah so main union jack does have breakfast show uh, but they have a lot of comedy writers who write bits and they've also bought lots of comedy clips from tv shows that go in between so you and you get kind of news and, and information as well so um it's a different way to do a station it's not quite a jukebox um, but the big, big challenge for them is cutting, is cutting through. And then the second station, which launches, uh, I think, in February next year, definitely in, in the first few months of next year, is Boom Radio. This is from Phil Riley um, and David Lloyd. Uh, they have been around the radio industry for a long time. They, uh, Phil created Heart and then ran Heart and Galaxy. Um, and then they relaunched LBC. It's sort of this first of LBC pretty much came from Phil and David. Uh, David's been at pretty much every main radio station over, over the last few years. Um, and both of them are in this sort of in their 60s now, um, or definitely getting that way, and um, had sort of semi-retired. But I've always said, and I, you know, I've spoken to them, they've always said, look, the big gap in commercial in all radio is is over 60s. Uh, and now Radio 2 are sort of moving away from the older audiences. Um, and so there is a gap. So the, the big question for them is, uh, there's definitely a gap in the market. Is there a market in the gap? And can people, you know, can they raise the, the right revenue from a group of people who have a lot of money to spend? But the argument's always been that they're the group of people that have already made their brand choices. Now, I think that's probably a slightly old-fashioned take. Um, and, you know, a 60-year-old now is very different to a 60-year-old uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of the heritage brands that are targeted at that audience, Rebecca, weren't designed for boomers. So you've got your BBC local radio stations, which are all moving younger anyway, but can have quite a fusty image. And you've got Saga, you know, which, again, if you're 55 now, you're going to think of as something that, you know... Possibly even your grandparents went on Saga holidays. Mm. So what's what's the thing for you? And and what's interesting about this is they, from what I understand, are intending to make programmes that sound like contemporary radio for younger people, um, <laughs> for people that are still interested in the world, but <laughs> just fixed people, around yeah. their interests in music, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, I think there's an interesting way in which what has been considered oldies radio was kind of stuck for a long time in the 60s, 70s. And I think it's only natural for, I mean, yeah, Radio 2, are, are yes, they are obviously targeting younger audience members than they were previously, but there's also a sense in which time has just moved on and the 90s is oldies now. I mean, it's 30 years ago, so. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it does mean there's this enormous tranche of people um, who I think probably then they might, they're not the Radio 4 audience, you know. That's traditionally been this idea of, you know, old people listening to Radio 4. But if you want music, yeah, I do think there's a, a huge gap in the market of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, they haven't released a lineup yet, but I think that would be very interesting to see which direction they go. Um, I know that Phil and David have met, talked in the past when they, when they were announcing the launch about bringing in people who were you know presenting during that time period which i think is a yeah that's a that's a great obviously that's a great idea there's the familiarity aspect but hopefully you know they'll remember that you know non-white people and women weren't invented in the 90s um you know they were around in those days and hopefully that will be reflected because you know when we think sometimes of a boomer audience we're thinking about a specific type of person but you know obviously men women black, white, Asian, etc. they are people in that age group as well. And so hopefully it will, it won't just be a kind of throwback to, 
you know, the 80s and the 70s, etc. Um, isn't isn't saying- Greatest Hits Radio sort of in this patch, though, Matt? I mean, that is what they're doing with Paul Gambaccini and Simon Mayo. They're doing increasing amounts of that. It is, though. It's a more traditional kind of older commercial radio audience, which is, you know, their targeting is probably more likely 35 55 35 65 whereas i think boom is is properly going 60 plus their trick is to probably have a good chunk of oldie songs or songs that this audience grew up with but to have a decent chunk of new music or modern songs that that audience really like because you don't want to you know if you're 60 to 70 you definitely don't feel old and you don't want to be seen as being old um and getting that balance will be the the, the, the challenge for them and if you're calling it boom <laughs> it's a very clever name but i mean in 20 years time you know are you going to get 60 year olds listening to them they won't want to listen to a station called boom after boomers will they i think they, they just want to get it up and working before they worry about what the future brand as with so many things at that is. age Um, what is interesting so in Norway they they have a station uh, the big popular station that's kind of a hybrid of Radio 2 and Radio 4 is called P1 and P1 uh, sort of in the the earlier sort of in the noughties had a big kind of DLT style um, you know kill off all the old DJs and and, and a refresh Um, and obviously it massively affected the ratings but it was still a popular station so they then launched uh, NRK P1 Plus and P1 Plus were for the basically people who used to listen to P1 before they were all told to get lost and they did a great um, TV ad campaign where it was like the old DJs going to like slightly dustier studios like all these people that you remember from the 80s and 90s who had been sort of bought back and the station was a massive success and this is NRK is the public broadcaster in Norway so it had a good amount of marketing behind it uh, but it sort of went kind of really it went it got very popular very quickly because it was an audience that didn't have um, a station for them and were kind of dealing with their least worst option and I think that's a question for you know over 60s now is the station they listen to a least worst option rather than something they really want to consume and at the moment, it's just the single brand that they're launching rather than a suite of stations like Union Jack now has become. But I'm interested in that idea of the kind of family of stations thing, because mm. it seems to me, even if you don't listen to the spin-offs, if you're using, I guess, what we might now call a traditional DAB set rather than a smart speaker, <laughs> yeah. as you spin through the dial, the fact that you have to go through three or four stations called Union Jack helps cement that brand in your head, doesn't it? It's like Virgin Radio with their chilled and their anthems or whatever. Mm. It just reminds you that Virgin Radio is there because it takes that little bit longer to go past it. I think it, I think it does. Though also, I think some of those stations are gateways to brands. So when Absolute Eighties launched, you know that had a lot of people who didn't listen to Absolute Radio and weren't really sure what it was, but they understood the word Eighties and were quite interested in that. Mm. And then it was like, oh, I've heard about this breakfast show, and like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm now an Absolute listener. Uh, and I think spinoffs. The other thing spinoffs can do is. Uh, they can stop you switching channel to a competitor and try and keep you in the family. Uh, and I think that's, that can be quite powerful as well. Well, we're going to keep you in our family for just a few minutes longer. You'll be thrilled to know there is time for our legendary media quiz. This week it is entitled Can't See the Wood for the Christmas Trees. I've taken three headlines from Press Gazette this week and inserted my Christmas paraphernalia to distract from the real issues very much like Christmas Day at my house. You need to identify the story that I've obscured via my Christmas words to score yourself a point. Uh, You say your name to buzz in, so Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Matt, you will say... Rudolph. Best of three, (laughs) here we go. Sunday Christmas, Mirror Holly, Sunday Ivy, People, Elf, Editor, Snow, Paul, Wenceslas, Henderson, Cold, Steps, Mariah Carey, Down in Restructure. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca. Rebecca. Uh, I think in there there's a story about Paul Henderson stepping down as editor of the Sunday Mirror and Sunday People. Well done, it is, yes. Uh, And he's not being replaced, Rebecca. I know that the Mirror is supposed to be a seven-day operation these days, but it's a bit odd having the Sunday People without an editor, isn't it? It's a bit odd having the Sunday People. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, quite. Well, isn't that the next step, though, really? I I think, is that generational? Maybe it's generational, because to me, I don't really understand why there should be a whole second team of people working on the same newspaper one day a week. If they just put the insides of the mirror 
around a Sunday People cover. Would anybody... What do you mean if? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, here's headline number two. Daily Sprouts Male Turkey pays potatoes out bread sauce £100,000 bubble and squeak to Queen Sir Speech James Noel Edmonds Dyson (laughs) presents... Yes, Rudolph. Uh, is that everyone's favourite out of the UK Brexiteer, James Dyson? It is. Um, got a got a Christmas bonus from uh, the Daily Mail for libelling him. Very elegantly done. Yes, the Daily Mail paid out £100,000 to Sir James Dyson over misreporting of a row with his housekeeper. Uh, and finally, the tiebreak. Wow, it's the end of the year and we have a tiebreak. How exciting is this? Here's headline number three. Santa FT's Coke Dan John Lewis advert McCrum Boxing Day crowned Indigestion Journalist of the Year stuffing for winter wirecard solstice investigation. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Uh, Matt. Uh, Matt. That's the the Journalist of the Year from the FT. Uh, Dan McCrum. Dan McCrum. There we yes. Go. There we go. Uh, indeed, yes. Journalist of the Year at the British Journalism Awards for his Wirecard investigation, which looked into German payments company Wirecard exposing a multi-billion euro fraud. Um, record 900 entries in the British Journalism Awards. Did you see that? I, was, I, I don't know if that indicates a flourishing market, Rebecca, or just a bit of desperation on behalf of the individuals concerned to get noticed before they lose their jobs. <laughs> it was very interesting, I thought, that the uh, story, the Journalist of the Year didn't go to something to do with covid trump etc although mm. that obviously did show up in some of the other awards um stuart ramsey got one didn't he for i can't remember what it was it was, I can't remember the title of the award but it was for his piece from the italian hospital back in march that i think was everyone's yes, like first news, yeah yeah very visceral exposure well uh, after all of that visceral exposure uh, matt <laughs> you are the festive winner of the media podcast quiz how does it feel uh, do i get a christmas bauble you are our Christmas bauble. Ah. Uh, and uh, that is it. Merry Christmas, everyone. My thanks to Rebecca Messina and Matt Deegan. We will be back with our annual prediction special early in January, in which we attempt to forecast the year in media ahead and bring to account those predictions from 2020. You can get that episode as soon as it drops when you subscribe uh, via any number of apps or at themediapodcast.com, where you can explore all the ghosts of episodes past and donate to keep us on the air long enough to reach 150 glorious episodes. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer for Old Time's Sake was Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio and PPM production. And until next year, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.